I'm Brenton Powers, and you're listening to Dwell on Truth. On today's program, we'll be dwelling on truth with Pastor David Guzik of Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara. But for the first half of the show, we're going to get an update from Pastor Benjamin Morrison in Ukraine. Welcome, Benjamin, back to the Dwell on Truth show. Hey, Brenton. Thanks for the invite. Well, thanks so much for making the time to catch us up with what's been going on. It's been several months since we last interviewed you. Right after the war started, you really gave us a good insight into what's going on on the ground in Ukraine with Christians and what's happening um, a couple months later. You gave us an update. And so now we're six months into the war in Ukraine. From what I'm hearing on the news, it doesn't sound like there's any sign of it ending anytime soon? What do you think about that? All of the expert opinion and intelligence and whatnot is saying that it will continue through the winter unless there's some unforeseeable circumstance. So some of the prognoses were that August uh, was to be a bit of a turning point Mm -hmm. in the war in Ukraine's favor. There have been some signs of that. Certainly, you know, Ukraine, as you've written and, and maybe some of your listeners will have heard, has been making very effective use of the longer range weapons that we've received targeting kind of uh, weapons warehouses uh, in occupied territory, you know, striking as far as far in as Crimea. Really, all of the analyses have shown that Russia is not making a lot of progress. um, And they haven't been really since June, kind of the last big win, I guess you could say the large territory that they captured was Kramatorsk and Lysychansk. After that happened, you know, they've had to throw, you know, almost everything they had at that to to take those. I mean, they, they raised the cities basically to the ground and then, you know, just mm-hmm. came into destroyed territory. Mm-hmm. But that cost them so dearly that they really haven't been able to regroup to do much of anything else, you know. And, and like I said, Ukraine's been making strikes now into occupied territory. Specifically, the area in the south of Kherson is where Ukraine is most likely to push back to retake territory. So there, there are some signs of that starting to happen, potentially happening, hopefully in the near future. But, you know, to say a final end to things, that's not going to be this year is what all the signs are pointing to, unfortunately. Unfortunately. Yeah. And unfortunately, we're marking the six month anniversary of when it started. And at the same time, there was Ukraine's Independence Day. What was it like to celebrate Ukraine's Independence Day last week while still dealing with all of this? What was the mood? On the one hand, people appreciated it more than normal let's put it that way Mm -hmm. what independence means and the high cost that we are currently having to pay to maintain that independence to fight for it ukraine's independence day specifically as when it declared re-declared itself as an independent nation after the crumbling of the soviet union back in 1991 so that's the day that was celebrated august 24th which was also also marked six full months of war as you mentioned yes for safety reasons they didn't do kind of a lot of the parades that that they typically do in mm-hmm. Kiev. But they also did sort of set up displays of destroyed and burned out Russian tanks. Mm-hmm. So there was, you know, there, there was a bit of a festivity in that as well. Well, we appreciate the fact that you are there. And thank you for that just initial update. Everyone's curious what's going on politically and with the war. But personally, for those who aren't familiar with you, I'll back up a step. And you're a, a good friend of mine for, I don't know how many years ago I met you. I think I first wrote to you because I found your 
YouTube videos explaining the gospel in Russian, and I speak Russian enough to understand what you were saying, and I asked permission to use that video in my uh, Bible college class. So what I really admire about Benjamin for our listeners is he is a pastor, he's a missionary. You've been in Ukraine for over 20 years, I've visited you twice, and he, uh, his wife is Ukrainian, his kids are citizens there, and beautiful family, great faith to live there that long and stay there during the war. And so I'd love to catch up with you personally and see how you guys are doing. I was really encouraged in the last week to see some of my friends posting videos like Calvary Chapel Preluki having worship services in their building again. Of course, I feel kind of out of the loop because I'm not there to see everything. But catch us up from four months ago where it seemed like a lot of the women and children have fled Ukraine in millions and millions of numbers. Are people starting to come back to Ukraine? Are churches starting to return to their cities, or are they kind of transplanting the churches and they're just flourishing where they are? What's going on spiritually in our church network there, Calvary Chapels? Specifically with Calvary Chapels, I mean, there was, you know, there's not that many of them here to start with. Some of them have uh, evacuated and are not really in existence anymore. Um, I mean, at at least not the large part of of those particular congregations. Mm -hmm. So for example, I mean, there was a church in Kharkov, which is um, Ukraine's second largest city in the east, which has been heavily bombed. Yeah. So uh, the members of that congregation, they, I, th- I think, without exception, all evacuated out in the very early days. As far as I know, there's a handful of them that are kind of have relocated to the same city in western Ukraine. So they're trying to meet at least that particular Calvary had an American pastor who is currently relocated to the U.S. Um, with his family. So I think he's he's trying to do some online mm-hmm. stuff with them as well. Mm-hmm. Zaporozhia has been in the news recently, and I we had friends that were in Zaporozhia. Was there a Calvary Chapel Zaporozhia? Yeah, yeah, there's a there's a Calvary there in Zaporozhia. So Zaporozhia is the large city that is very near the nuclear reactor, probably you and, and many of your listeners have heard about recently. Yep. There's a group of people that are, some people from there have evacuated. As far as I know, there's still kind of at least a core group that's, that's in place and they're okay. meeting. The thing is, any large major city in Ukraine has been a target for rockets. Yeah. So Zaporozhia, among you know many other cities, has been hit. Yeah. But it's not far to the east where you know there's these cities that are just being pounded every yeah. day, like Kharkov. Um, you know, it's just I mean, there's not a day that goes by that they don't get hit by a rocket. Yeah. So, yeah. And I hear some people going back to in the news they call it war torn Chernigiv, and there was a church there. Do you know if that's if they've resumed? If they return, yeah, or? I do. I do know about that particular situation. So, um, you know, another thing, you know, the the pastor um, who was Ukrainian, um, because they had a large family. Ukraine has a rule basically that men of fighting age cannot leave the country unless you have three or more kids, mm-hmm. um, which they happen to. So their family evacuated out. But one of the, I guess, I think he's one of the deacons, sort of a pastor in training there. He stayed. All of the young people who were part of the church and the church was you know mostly a younger church um they mostly all got out in in that early month you know in in march when chernigov was essentially all but surrounded it was never taken it was never captured thankfully although all the territory around it was but it was also ruthlessly you know bombed Mm -hmm. but then they you know the ukrainian army pushed the russians out of the whole northern part of the country back towards the end of march beginning of april so it's been free since then they've 
dealt with the, you know, aftermath of kind of being in mostly occupied territory. So there's, you'll still hear reports of like, you know, don't, you know, don't go walking around the woods. Don't go, you know, stay on the roads um, because the Russians, when they left, they put mines and sort of, you know, uh, explosive traps on as much, you know, just to inflict as much civilian damage as they could. I mean, this, that's terrible. You know, this tells you about their mentality. Like it's just evil. Yeah. They don't care, you know, if they're blowing up toddlers or whoever, you know, they're just, they're out for destruction. It really is genocidal. Yeah. So anyway, but uh, back to the church in Chernigov, there's a lot of people, obviously, that didn't leave, especially older people. So older people tend to be the people that stay the latest. You know, they kind of tend to think, well, you know, this is my home. This is where I lived all my life. I'm old and I'm, you know, too tired to, <laughs> to go anywhere. And, and hey, maybe I'm going to die soon anyway. So I'll just stay here. So he, the guy in Chernigov now, he's got like 80 or 90 babushki, you know, grandmas right. uh, <laughs> coming, coming to their Sunday service. And he's a young guy. He's like in his 20s, you know, so he's he's trying to, to figure out how to minister to all of these elderly people. Yeah. Um, as most churches in Ukraine are now, you know, working to get humanitarian aid mm -hmm. to those who need it. Yeah. And so a lot of people I've also heard on like NPR was talking about the increase in PTSD. People have lived through shelling of their cities and many people have lost so many of their loved ones, either through death or through fleeing for refuge. Gosh, there's so many questions I have like have you personally known people that have died in this war? And are you experiencing anything like that? Grieving the loss of loved ones? Yeah, I I have. There was a guy who is was the deacon at a church. Pastor's a good friend of mine. I've preached there many times. Uh, that deacon was called up for military service back in May, I believe it was, you know, and, and really, I mean, he went to the front, you know, just, just seeing it as another way to serve people. I mean, great guy, just, you know, had very servant hearted. And yeah, I think it's been, I think it's been three or four weeks now, but we got the news that he was killed fighting in action. Roma is his name. So sorry, that's heartbreaking. Yeah. I mean, that was, that was, that was the first person that had been killed through the war that I knew personally. I mean, obviously there's, there've been, you know, many thousands killed at this point, but it hits you a little bit differently when it's somebody that you actually know. Yeah. And how do you process that? It's horrible and, you know, it's painful again, you know, because this is a guy who, you know, deeply, he knew Christ's love for him and he believed in the power of the resurrection. And, you know, yeah. there's no time where that's more important and more meaningful than, you know, in the face of death. So I have every confidence that I will see this brother again. Yeah. But obviously for his wife and his sons, um, I can't, I can't, you know, they're, they're obviously his wife and his kids are believers too. But yeah, I mean, I can't, can't even imagine what they're going through. Yeah. You know, one, one, one of the last things that, that he had posted, um, this Deacon Roma, one of the last things he had posted on his Facebook was, you know, a video that he was kind of FaceTiming with his his sons and the younger of which is only four years old, uh -huh. you know, basically saying like, you know, oh, we miss you, dad. Like, you know, can't wait to see you again soon. You know, that's heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, they will see him again soon uh, in Christ. You know, there is that hope, but it's yeah. it's obviously not going to be as soon as they thought. Yeah. So just yeah. pray for, I mean, if any, if any of those listening are people who pray, pray for Roma's family. 
Yeah. 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 We have uh, both non Christians and Christians that listen on this radio station. It's not a Christian station, but they allow us to right, right. preach uh, clearly about the gospel and what the Bible says. First Thessalonians four thirteen says, We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. And by sleep, he means d- have died, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. It doesn't mean we don't grieve, it just means we don't grieve in a way that is hopeless. We grieve. But we have hope as believers, like you said, because in the next verse, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And we declare the word of the Lord. So, based on that eternal hope, death isn't the end, and that changes everything. You still grieve the loss. You miss these people. You're sad for what they experienced in their final moments on this planet. But we know that they go to be with the Lord, and they leave behind faith. family, and that's, we grieve a lot for them because of their loss, but it's not an internal loss if you're a believer. If you have any specific prayer requests or anything, I could share that. Obviously, you know, a a swift Ukrainian victory. Okay. Figuring out new opportunities, because over over the months, I mean, the need obviously shifts, it changes. We were housing kind of most people for one night, right, in the beginning, because everybody was getting out as fast as they can, and then it became longer stays, and then it became we went and evacuated people ourselves because the people that were left didn't have cars. Yeah. You know, and then it was, uh, you know, kind of more humanitarian aid needs uh, growing, which those are still around and continue to grow, you know, and then now the government has, as the time and the situation changes, the the needs also shift. So we're just, you know, also trying to figure out now, especially as we head into winter, you know, the school year is supposed to be starting for, for kids here. A lot of them obviously will be doing distance education maybe job creation since there's such a you know unemployment yeah i mean that's a huge thing too is the need for some form of employment because people are you know going on half a year now without a job and some people have found employment yeah it's obviously a huge need you know one of the questions i got and it really made me upset um one of the times when i was live on the radio and we get callers from atheists this one in particular his name is colonel terry He's a very militant atheist, and he always calls in and, you know, gives his rant about how only smart people believe in God, and it's a delusion to believe in God, and if there is a God, why would he allow bad things to happen? You know, he goes through his usual rant, but this one time he decided to pick on Ukraine and say, like, if God's a loving God, why would he let all those people in Ukraine suffer? And he basically tried to make God responsible for that. And I responded emotionally, like, how can you say that? The people in Ukraine Ukraine that I know are not blaming God. They're calling upon God for help because he is their hope. How would you respond to such an attack against Christianity and emotional argument that unfortunately some people are moved by these kinds of arguments to say, well, then there must be no God because there's things like war happening and innocent people dying? Yeah, I mean it's a it's a good and a valid question. Why is this being allowed to happen now? There's there's a number of ways to go about answering it. I mean, first of all, you know, it's different when somebody just kind of on the outside takes the situation and uses it. Yeah, you know, oh well, you know, I heard about some country that I don't even know how to find it on a map. Yeah, but there's bad things there, so you know, therefore I don't believe in God. It se- it seems a little bit like slightly contrived. It's using people's pain for your own argument. 
equipment. Yeah. Um, now, it's a very different thing when you're the one going through that. Yeah. On the one hand, we have certainly seen just multitudes of Ukrainians turning to Christ in these times because uh, the things that you think give you stability and hope in the midst of crisis, you realize they actually don't. Mm-hmm. You know, and so people are in search of something more stable, something stronger, you know, that can't be blown up by a bomb. That's Christ who has overcome the grave, overcome death. So we do see many people turning to Christ in this time. At the same time, I mean, you know, certainly there are some, I would imagine, uh, Ukrainians who who would say, you know, how could people possibly talk about, you know, a good, loving God at a time like this when all of this war and evil and destruction is happening? Yeah. You know, the answer to that person has to sound different than to the person who's just sort of using some somebody else's situation yeah. to say, I, I wish I had an answer for you, but I don't. Mm-hmm as to why exactly this is happening. I mean, that's one thing that we've talked about a lot here. Yeah. You know, why exactly is this war happening? I mean, you know, obviously there's there's the obvious, let's say, you know, human explanations of there's a really, I don't want to, I mean, I'm not going to say Blame Putin. Well, no, no, because Putin is not sitting in every tank. Putin is not mm-hmm. the one on the front line. Putin is, let's say, masterminding it all. But none of this war could happen without the tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands and unfortunately you know according to the polls even millions of russians who um you know who Who somehow have been lied to and believed the propaganda enough that they think that this is somehow a good thing um so it's i mean you know it's easy to say oh well it's just putin well it's not just putin yeah it's a lot that's like saying oh well you know world war ii you know nazi germany oh it was just hitler well it Uh, wasn't just hitler it was you know hundreds of thousands and millions of other germans who had been taken in by that lie Mm. I mean, some perhaps out of fear, some out of ignorance, many possibly out of willing ignorance. Mm. And that's the same reality here. I mean, it's easy to say, oh, it's just Putin. If we got rid of Putin, the problem would be over. Well, maybe, but maybe not. So it's an overly simplistic answer to say that Putin is the one to blame, really, human nature. Yeah, he's the one who bears the ultimate responsibility, obviously, um, because if he wasn't making the decision to start this war, it wouldn't have started. So, you know, Mm. that's that's the ultimate responsibility as as the leader of, of that country. Um, but there's more responsibility. I mean, there's responsibility on every soldier who pulls the trigger. Yep. You know, there's uh, responsibility um, also on those who, you know, again, perhaps simply out of fear, but are are quietly, passively, um, you know, supporting the war in the sense that they're not doing anything or saying anything to go against it. Do you blame human nature as well? Or is it just the Russians that are evil? <laughs> really, we all, if we're given the same uh, information that a lot of the people in Russia were given, we're all capable of self-deception and justifying oh, atrocities sure. yeah, just yeah. as humans. <laughs> we, we see that over we all, and over again. We all to lie to ourselves um, in order to justify sin, you know, whether that's something that looks, you know, horrendous and blatant, like, you know, committing a genocidal war against another country, or whether it's, you know, let's say on a smaller scale, um, you know, destroying, destroying your family relationships through, you know, sleeping yeah. around with with people or you know or or destroying just really your own life you know greed and and yeah. pride and things like this so I mean, ultimately, you know, why is this happening? I mean, there's there's a big philosophical answer, theological answer, you could say, which is that there's sin in the world. Yeah. And this, this is where, you know, Christianity makes more sense because when you look at things like what's happening in Ukraine, if you don't believe in the fact that, you know, destruction and 
killing, using power to destroy weaker nations. I mean, we look at this, I would hope most of the world looks at this and says, this is evil, right? What's happening is evil. It's not just inconvenient, which yeah. which it is decidedly inconvenient, but it's more than that. It's evil. Yeah. But you, here's the thing is, unless you believe in a universal standard of moral good, you have no basis on which to call, say, a war like this evil or anything evil for that matter. Amen. Yeah, you can't even define what is good and evil objectively. The most you can say is, I don't like it. It's, yeah. it's inconvenient to me. <laughs> Which, I mean, that that's also true, but, you know, because I believe that this is against God's will, because he, he commands not to kill, not to destroy, not to steal, uh, you know, he's a God who loves justice. Yes. I mean, the Bible says all of these things, so, you know, Christianity gives that moral basis to say that this is actually evil. Yes. Amen. Yep. You know, moreover, I mean, again, obviously there, there are, you know, other religious views that would also say, well, this is not right or good, it's also evil. But the military an atheist doesn't have ground to stand on right, to say, right. you know, God is responsible for evil. If they reject right. the Bible, then they can't account for why evil is there. Right. That's a big part of how we argue for Christianity. We did a debate recently with an atheist who was a lawyer who was more calm and not so militant, but still. Mm-hmm. But the other part of my answer to him, and I want to get your feedback on this too, because I'm, I know you're seeing a lot of Christian outpouring of support. Like I'm looking at your Facebook page at Benjamin D. Morrison, and I'm seeing Aid Agency by Crossing Cultures. You have a, a picture of Pastor Phil Metzger. I see Aaron Markey. I see, uh, what's his name? Paul Billings. Yeah. <laughs> Paul Billings. So, you know, part of my answer to this atheist who is like, oh, why is God letting this happen? Well, God is sending help. God is, it's more Christians than atheists that I know of sending help into Ukraine. Like, what have you done to help people, Mr. Colonel Terry? He said, oh, I write to, um, I write to the senators that they should send more support. And them. that's great. And we're thankful for Colonel Terry's letters. And it, w- it would be great if some Christians took that approach as well. Yeah. I did hear about $3 billion that was pledged by the U.S. government to help Ukraine just yesterday. Right. Yeah, that's that's the latest tranche. Um, I mean, there, you know, the U.S. has given more than that uh, up to this point. So what are you seeing in terms of what Christians are doing? And what, what are you doing to help with the people there to share the love and, and hope and comfort? of Jesus and just meeting practical needs? Are you still using your church as a kind of a halfway house refugee place? Or what are you doing and so that people here can know what God is doing to help the people there? Yeah, um, I mean, you know, the churches and and really Ukrainian government has recognized this, that the just sort of this um, organic, you know, kind of grassroots network of churches. I mean, they were they they have been the ones doing the bulk of humanitarian relief, mm-hmm. taking in, like you mentioned, taking in refugees who are who are fleeing from areas that are being heavily bombed, finding ways to get you know food, medicine, hygiene products, you know, whatever it is. You know, the churches have really been on the forefront of of all of that. You know, and I mean, in our city, so our city is not a large city. But it's gotten larger since all of the refugees have headed here. There's currently only one place that is giving out regular humanitarian food aid, and that's our church. Mm. So even the city, I mean, even the city has limited, they'll give like a one-time food aid package to new refugees when they arrive. But there's, I mean, there's obviously there's an ongoing need. Right. Um, You know, if if anything, the need is greater now. Um, Yeah. You know, because now we're now we're six months into people being 
you know, without a job, uh-huh. you know, ha- having to have been relocated from their home. So, yeah, it, it really is churches, other Christian ministries, organizations that is doing, I would say, the the lion's share of you know serving people practically. Yes. I mean, perhaps I don't I don't know your 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 friend the colonel there. Um, you know, it could potentially, you know, sometimes you'll hear the arguments like, oh, well, you know, people need practical help. They they don't need to, you know, hear about, you know, just God and, and, and some sort of, you know, what they would call abstract hope. So it's not, you know, well, the reality is they need both. both yes. And if you, if you believe in the Bible, then you will believe that humans are, yes, physical beings, but also spiritual beings. So they're both. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not just spiritual beings, right? So we need food. We need basic necessities covered. But, you know, also not just physical, because you can you can give somebody, you know, all the all the physical help that they need. Uh, but I mean, you know, we, we all know the stories of celebrities who have all the physical goods that they could ever dream of, you know, and then they end up committing suicide. Yeah. Right. Or they end up just severely addicted to narcotics or whatever, which I mean, it's just a way of saying that people obviously need more than just material mm-hmm. uh, needs met. So, um, you know, each church is, is, is doing what it can yeah so sorry to jump in here as you're describing the situation is even more there's even a greater need and the church is doing what it can what can people here do can we give to help calvary chapel svitlovotsk to provide food for those who are hungry and hope for those who are hurting where could people send financial support for example to help you with the work that you're doing uh yeah i mean definitely we we greatly are appreciative and thankful for everyone who is plugging in to help us do this. Um, obviously, you know, it's not like we we have all these resources ourselves. Um, yeah. So for those who want to donate uh, to help us, you know, meet the needs of these people to bring hope to, to those in Ukraine during this time, we have a shortened giving link. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's bit.ly slash give to Ukraine with the number two bit.ly slash give to Ukraine. Uh, and that's set up through um, one of my partner churches is uh, 501c3 in the states so those are tax deductible donations that's great yeah i hope people i really encourage people to do that because you guys have been there for 21 years you speak fluently in russian then part of ukraine where you are that's the the majority of people speak in russian in svidlovotsk still or is that starting to change with as more nationalism and ukrainian is on the on the rise um let's not call it nationalism because that's oh. something different oh okay <laughs> patriotism patriotism yeah, nationalism usually is defined as a more negative, you know, kind of we're better than than those <laughs> other people. Okay. Whereas patriotism is simply a love for your own country. Historically, our city um, has been, at least, you know, since we've lived here, uh, more Russian speaking than Ukrainian. There's all the historical reasons behind that. Obviously, you know, before the Soviet Union showed up, people were not Russian speaking. Uh, they were Ukrainian speaking because this is Ukraine. But, you know, the Soviet Union came in and imposed that. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, to this day, uh, the city's more Russian speaking than Ukrainian speaking. But I mean, the reality is everybody in Ukraine, almost everybody in Ukraine is is bilingual. So everybody can yeah. speak both. How is your Ukrainian? I, I know your Russian is fluent, but are you uh, 
are you learning Ukrainian too? It's pretty good. I don't know. I don't know that I'd feel comfortable preaching in it in mm-hmm. in the way that I do in Russian. But I mean, I can. You know, I I certainly have no trouble understanding it for sure. Speaking it is a little little bit more challenging, just because I'll run into a word that I'm I'm not quite sure how to say in Ukrainian. But the thing is, a lot of people like Ukrainians, you'll you'll run into that as well. So they'll they'll fill in a word from one language or the other that they don't know. Uh, so it kind of becomes a pigeon uh, mix, mm-hmm. which you can find especially in like you know smaller towns and villages you'll find that fairly frequently so you can understand better than you can speak ukrainian specifically ukrainian yeah, yeah that's 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 true yeah do they call it surjik when it's mixed they do call it surjik yeah, yeah. <laughs> i had a hard time with surjik when i lived there right. so i wasn't sure whether it was russian words that i hadn't been taught yet or ukrainian but yeah right. uh, uh, we're happy to support you and to pray for you i appreciate that you're also laboring with city to city europe and i see on your facebook that you are doing a a European church planting intensive. You've been doing this for several years, equipping pastors and church planters, and uh, you ask for help uh, training 12 new church planters. That's this year. You're back at it. Would you tell us a little bit about that initiative? Uh, yeah, sure. So um, City to City is a ministry that was founded by Tim Keller, which maybe some of your listeners will have heard of, just basically to help promote movements of the gospel in, in key global cities, uh, specifically through church planting. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I I serve as the training coordinator for City to City in Europe, as well as being the director for City to City Ukraine. So what countries, I'm seeing a map here of the countries, can you go run through the list of countries that people are coming from at your training? Uh, For this particular intensive training? Or just where City to City is in Europe? Well, I mean, City to City is present to some degree in most countries in Europe. There's a few that, that they haven't really gotten anything launched yet city to city it's not it's not a denomination mm-hmm. the idea is to kind of help to catalyze local movements really in key cities mm-hmm. of the gospel to influence those key cities and then from those cities tends to be the case that culture trickles out of you know large key cities mm-hmm. so the hope is that from those cities then they'll go on to influence their respective countries yeah it's really inspiring seeing this the photos that you've shared just a few minutes ago and this map here where there's Edinburgh, Scotland, Hamburg, Germany, Nuremberg, Germany, Debrecen, Hungary, Rome, Italy, Athens, Greece. I don't even know how to pronounce it. Girona, Girona, Spain? Uh, Girona, yeah. Girona, Barcelona, Madrid, um, and there's something in Portugal, Coimbra? Coimbra, mm-hmm. And Tel Aviv is on there, even though it's not technically Europe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, it's kind of yeah. off the map there, but that's right. uh, are people coming from Tel Aviv to Europe to get trained for city-to-city ministry? Well, this year we do have, yeah, we have um, a planter coming from Tel Aviv to take part in the European intensive, yeah. just because they don't have necessarily the level of development that we have currently in Europe that that, that would be in the Middle East. So there's not as many training opportunities um, okay. with City to City in the Middle East. So it tends to be that people from Israel will, will relate to us as City to City Europe a lot. Okay, great. And you're, you're asking for help with training these church planters. So that I see a different link there. It's kind of a comp. Uh, it's not that complicated. Buff.ly. It's, well, it's a, it's a kick. It's a Kickstarter campaign. Okay. Um, it's just yeah. I mean, you know, we we tried to provide church planter training to planters. You know, at at just. I mean, it's not even at cost. It's much lower than cost. Uh, we heavily subsidize it um, because it tends to be that you know church planters, especially in Europe, um, don't have a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, uh, if we were to 
charge them the actual cost of, you know, kind of mm-hmm. coming, coming to another city, you know, um, for, for the, the place where we do the training and, uh, you know, the hotel and we're feeding them. I mean, even that cost of just the physical would be way beyond their budget. Yeah. Cause um, are, are you flying? To, not to mention, I'm sorry. Are you, are you hosting it there in Ukraine or are you flying to another country? I know you were in Moldova no, recently. Britain, sur- surprisingly, not that many people want to travel to Ukraine right now. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> and also none of our airports yeah. are working. Um, oh, so how are yeah, you, no, where are you doing this be, training? It's going to be hosted in Rome. Okay. Yeah. So for, for me to get there, I have to drive out of Ukraine. Uh, I actually just did this run last week uh, for, for another matter um, to Moldova, which is one of our neighboring countries. Happens to be the closest international airport um, to where we're located. But it's it's a 12-hour drive, one direction. So, you know, okay. Uh, good long road trip. Um, How was that for, for you, a trip to Moldova? Is there your, your first time there? It's outside the war zone? Well, for now. Um, did you get to visit friends there? I have some friends there, Stephen and Teresa. Yeah, yeah, I know Stephen. Um, no, we. I mean, we just made a, a quick trip to the... I mean, the reason for the trip was going to the U.S. consulate um, because the U.S. consulate in Ukraine is currently not operational, um, again, due to the war. Uh, so it was just for, I mean, you know, standard passport renewal stuff, whatever. Did it feel like you're getting a break from the... Like, I don't know how to describe. Was the ambience different in Moldova when you crossed over? Well, even though we were only in the country for 12 hours, um, there was some noticeable differences, which is, you know, no air raid sirens, <laughs> uh, no check hedgehogs, which if your listeners don't know what that is, they can Google it. Um, but it's basically these anti, these large metal anti-tank things that look like large jacks. Yeah. You, I mean, if you saw it, you'd know what I'm talking about. If you Google, it's like this six-sided, you know, like balls and jacks, like that really old game that people play, like you throw yeah. a ball, pick up jacks. So it looks like a jack, only it's huge uh, and metal. It's an anti-tank device. Oh, okay. I just Googled it and I see it. It's those big things that they put in the middle of the street. Now you know what I'm talking about. Yes, it's those things. So those are called Czech hedgehogs Yeah, from Czechoslovakia. Uh, Man. Um, was, is where the name, name was taken from. So it was a little bit of a break, but are you and your wife getting to take any breaks from, I mean, there's a compassion fatigue when people are serving those in, in, as you are. Are you getting, you know, are, I want to make sure you're taking time to get refreshed and perspective and get outside of the, the stress that you've been under for six months. I, I appreciate your, your concern, Britain. Um, I mean, we are, you know, after the first month, maybe when we were just going, 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 didn't stop, you know, day to late in the night, kind of running on adrenaline, first of all, yeah. you know, second of all, the needs were just flooding in. And thirdly, I think probably we expected that it would be over much more quickly. Yeah. You know, I remember telling somebody in March, like, oh, this will probably be over by the middle of April, um, yeah. <laughs> which clearly it is not. At some point, we realized basically that this is not a hundred meter dash. It's the marathon. We realized like, hey, we need to make sure that we're, you know, getting a day off every week and kind of pace ourselves yes. for the long haul as you would when you're running a marathon. Yeah. Well, I hope that one day I'll be able to come back and visit you. And for those of my audience who want to see what you're up to, I, I will share a link on our websites, dwellontruth.org, so that you can follow Benjamin D. Morrison on, on Facebook. You just go by Ben Morrison. Benjamin or Ben, yeah, okay. either way. But to find him on Facebook, it's facebook.com slash Benjamin D. Morrison. And thank you so much for spending this hour. I want to honor your time. I know it's getting late there. And uh, let your wife and kids know that we're praying for them and we are happy 
happy to see the progress of what God is doing in spite of all the evil that's happening. God is doing a good work through you, Benjamin, and the network of Calvary Chapels and City to City in Europe. So thank you for inviting us into your world and sharing an update after six months in this war. Yeah, thank you, brother. Appreciate it. Amen. Thank you so much for keeping in touch. You too, man. Yeah, great to talk with you. Take care. Take care, my friend. I'm Brenton Powers, and you're listening to Dwell on Truth. On today's program, we'll be dwelling on truth with Pastor David Guzik of Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara. If you're just tuning in, you can download both interviews at dwellontruth.org. All right. Hey, David. Thank you so much for being on the Dwell on Truth show. Hi, Brent. It's great to be here. Yeah, thank you for agreeing to the interview. I'd love to ask you some questions about the Great Commission, missions, evangelism, discipleship, what our show is about, loving God and loving people. You're well known for being a Bible commentator. You didn't really set out to establish a commentary that everybody uses. I found your teaching helpful, too. And I just appreciated the balance you had of God's grace, not by works, but it's a work of God, so He gets the glory, not just for teaching, but maybe for evangelism. How do you maintain the balance of presenting the gospel without making it seem like it's all up to you? You just There's a work of God, but then there's also a response that, that people need to make. You know, that's a really interesting question. I, I thank you for that, for those kind words, Brent, because I, I really believe that a big charge of the uh, responsibility of being a Bible teacher is to do what the Apostle Paul said, is to rightly divide the word of truth mm-hmm. and to, to figure out how um, the whole collection of biblical truth and understanding, how it fits together into something coherent. And and as we do that, we really do understand there are some passages of Scripture which emphasize more uh, God's sovereign action mm-hmm. uh, in, for example, evangelism and in the, the work of the gospel. Uh, there's other passages that seem to emphasize more human responsibility. And we don't take those as canceling out one another. Mm-hmm. We're, we're looking for a way to say, okay, this is how these things work together. Yeah. And when it comes to evangelism, I think it is important to see that God really has decreed, and it's in his sovereign plan, that there will be people from every tribe, every language, every people group around his throne. We have that vision from the book of Revelation. Uh, Nevertheless, he really has given human beings, us, his people, the church, so to speak, that responsibility of going out into all the world and making disciples. Mm -hmm. I really like when it comes to that idea of the work that we do, whether it be in evangelism, in church planting, anything else. I appreciate what Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He's talking about his work, and he says, he makes this amazingly bold statement. He says that he worked harder than any of the other apostles. Yeah, can you believe I. that? Yeah, he's he's <laughs> like he's like, I I worked harder than James or Peter, and then, which on the one hand is such an audacious thing to say, but Paul said it. But at the same time, he immediately recognized, just as you said, yet not I, but the work of God within me. But so the grace of God. Paul, yes, mm-hmm. he, he understood that it was, yes, he was doing the work, but at the same time, God was doing it in him. Yeah. God is going to intend that I do the work, but he'll work in me and through me. Amen. Yeah. Amen. So the grace of God, you have some great teachings on the grace of God. 
It's past, present, future. It's justification, sanctification. It's glorification. Speaking of the gospel of grace, I wanted to give you an opportunity. We're on the air on a non-Christian radio station to share the gospel with non-believers as well. Would you be willing to share how you would share the gospel with a non-believer about the grace of God? What do people need to know to have just a basic grasp of what is the gospel? Well, the gospel, I find the most direct explanation of it to be found in 1 Corinthians 15, actually the same passage we were just referring to, just earlier in the chapter, where Paul very clearly says that the gospel he preached, the good news, because we should always remember that's what the word gospel means. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, a, it's good news. The good news that Paul brought was the message that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. The gospel essentially is the message of what God has done for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ, especially what he did for us at the cross and in the resurrection. So really to present Jesus to people is presenting the gospel But it's not just presenting Jesus. Brenton, if I present Jesus, uh, the social activist to people, um, that's not the gospel. If I present Jesus, the miracle worker to people, that's not the gospel. If I present Jesus as the confronter of uh, religious corruption, uh, those are all true things about Jesus, Mm -hmm. but it's not the gospel. Paul and the other New Testament writers always come back to this idea that the gospel is distinctly rooted in what Jesus did on the cross. Now, as a corollary or as an aspect of that, there really is the proclamation of the love of God and the grace of God. And this is what I mean by that, is that I don't think you can accurately preach about what Jesus or present, let's leave the word preach out of it, maybe it's just in a conversation. You can't accurately present what God has done for us in Jesus at the cross and in the empty tomb without talking about God's motive in doing that. Mm -hmm. And the Bible makes it very clear, the motive of God for that was love. And so to talk to people very surely, God loves you, God cares about you, and God has made provision, he's made a way for you to be right with him, to be a part of his great, eternal, unfolding plan of the ages, to have a life that is under his blessing and goodness, both now and into eternity. God loves you and has made all those things for you, and it happens for you through the person and work of Jesus, especially what he's done at the cross and the empty tomb. Amen. Amen. So with that, the phrase, Christ died for our sins, how much of that bad news do you share with people before sharing the good news? You know, do we need to define sin? Do we need to warn about, uh, you know, the consequences of sin? Well, And and I would say often we need to. Now, Mm -hmm. I I wouldn't say absolutely in every case, because I, I find one very interesting case of evangelism in the book of Acts, where the Apostle Paul seemed to make no appeal to the law, no effort to show somebody their sinfulness. There's no even direct reference to repentance Hmm. in this situation. And it's with the Philippian jailer. Oh, right. You know. What must I do to be be saved? saved? Well, believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And he didn't say anything about repentance. He didn't uh-huh. say anything about that. Now, why? Well, because I think the circumstances of the situation, which obviously we weren't there, we don't know the fullness of the circumstances, but mm-hmm. when you have a Roman soldier about ready to plunge a large dagger or a small sword into his abdomen and kill himself, he's at an end of himself. Yeah. He's not looking for any salvation in himself. I think Paul could rightly assume that this man understood that he was lost and needed a savior. Yes. That's why he was about to actually kill himself. And that's why he asked, what do I need to do to be saved? Yes, Uh yes. So there are certain evangelistic situations that are like that, where the ground has been so prepared by previous messengers or previous aspects of what God has done in that life that we don't need to talk to people about their sin, about the need for repentance. Mm -hmm. But those, I think, are are rather rare. For the most part, it's important for people to have a sense that they're genuinely saved, if we want to use that word, from something. Here's the thing I like to emphasize with it, that Jesus is not something or someone that's just added to somebody's life. Add some Jesus and you'll have a better life. Which, honestly, (laughs) that is often how the message of the gospel is presented to people today. Now, you and I know that's not really the message of the gospel, but that's how it's often presented to people. Mm -hmm. Add Jesus to your life and you'll have a better life. That's not the gospel. But instead, it's that we are lost, we are blind, we are sick, we are dead. Mm -hmm. We need a Savior, and Jesus Christ is that Savior. Awesome. Thank you. So how should someone respond once they've heard the gospel? And we're, we're going not just to make converts, right? The Great Commission is go make disciples. How do we then invite them to become a disciple? And uh, in a way that's obvious that it's not just a say this quick prayer and then you can forget about it. That's what happened to me when I was seven years old. Uh, But in a way where we're actually encouraging people to go on and follow the Lord as a disciple, as a learner, to get saved and then discipled. Sometimes Christians get in the trap of thinking And and I understand why they get into this trap, but it is a trap where they're thinking, okay, I want as many people to go to heaven as possible. What's the bare minimum that a person must do in order to get to heaven? I'm going to figure out what the bare minimum is, and I'm going to encourage people to do that, that bare minimum. And then that's good, because then I can think, well, they're going to heaven. Where that's not the picture presented to us by the New Testament or the Bible at all, where our job isn't just getting people with some kind of bare minimum to escape hell and go to heaven. The idea is Jesus is in the world to make disciples. Yeah. Uh, There's some controversy in the last couple years in the Christian world about a prominent Christian pastor who talked about, uh, as he put it, unhitching the Old Testament from the New Testament and the message of the gospel. familiar with that. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and even, he said, the idea of not really appealing to the scriptures, to the Bible as an authority, uh, but rather speaking to people at the resurrection of Jesus and Look, I I don't want to say the guy's a bad guy or anything, but I think he's really misguided. And to my perception, at least one of his errors is that he's thinking in that bare minimum kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And you would say, well, is an understanding of the Old Testament or other doctrines, is it essential to somebody going to heaven? You have to say, well, no, it isn't. Right. But is it essential for discipleship? Uh-huh. Yes, it is. Yeah. And that's what God has called us to do. Yeah. Not just make converts, so to speak, but make disciples. Right. And if we unhitch that from the authority of God's word, 
then on what basis are we telling people to be following Jesus? I mean, part of discipleship is teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And if you don't know what he's commanded you because you're not believing the scriptures, then that's a problem. Another issue I think is just as important that is greatly attacked and needs to be defended today is the authority and inspiration and inerrancy of scripture. Then, okay, well, let's obey God and let's see what he wants us to do. So, can you give a little bit of a defense for the biggest argument against the Bible is it's a book that was written hundreds of years after the fact, not by contemporary eyewitnesses. How do you counter that? Well, I don't think I can objectively prove by empirical evidence that the Bible is the God-inspired words of deity. I I believe that that is something of a step of faith. Hmm. But I do believe we can empirically prove that it is absolutely the most unique, powerful, influential book of all human history. I mean, that's that's just empirical data. Mm -hmm. So I, I think we can have a confidence in the Bible and a interest in the Bible through purely secular empirical measuring points. And I believe that going to the Bible with that understanding and with true intellectual integrity will lead us to a confidence in it as the inspired Word of God. I mean, one of the most important marking points is that we're not denying the human element in the Scriptures. That is that it was written by men. It was written by men, and it was written through the personality of those men. Mm -hmm. You know how it is. When you read the writings of John, you recognize... That's John's writings. You know something of the personality of Paul. You know something of the personality of Isaiah, of David. So we, we get those things. We're not saying that God used human beings as robots, but that God was speaking in them and through them in a greater way so that the words are actually the word of God. Now, when we leave that idea of the inspiration and the inerrancy of God's word, then... It's basically up to me as the reader or the interpreter Mm -hmm. to decide what's of God and what's not. And as soon as I do that, then I'm the authority, not the Word of God. That's a problem. (laughs) Well, yeah, it certainly is a problem because I'm the one who's there to declare what is God's Word and therefore to be obeyed or observed or honored. And things that I don't think are worthy of that, I can just cast aside. They're going to sit in the place of deciding, of picking and choosing, this is inspired by God, this is not. Well, the thing is, is that Mm -hmm. these are guys just making up their own minds, their own opinions, clearly sitting in judgment over it. Now, the fascinating thing about that, Brent, is you know how this works, is... If I'm in the place of deciding what is truly God's word and what isn't, I am invariably going to construct a God that somehow agrees with me yeah. on all these important issues. <laughs> you pick and choose yeah, what you and like. And especially regarding my pet sins. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm going to have a God that somehow finds those things okay. But to the best of our ability, we need to set those things aside and come to the text and let the text itself 
show us what's true and what isn't true about it. My attitude is I might be wrong, but you're going to have to show me from the scriptures where I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. And if you can point out biblical evidence that I have ignored, that I've neglected, that I've misunderstood, and make it clear to me where I'm wrong, then I I would appreciate because I want to believe what the Bible says and what it teaches, not just what I've inherited from my tradition. Yeah, because we want to know the truth. It's not just about maintaining a, a tradition. Absolutely. Excellent. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And we neglect to our own detriment the riches, the grace, the goodness of the word of God that just, as you point out very well, that Jesus himself attests to. Yeah. I was surprised when I moved back from the mission field of Europe how much America is catching up to the post-Christian Europe in terms of secularism on the rise. Yes. Church attendance is much lower here in Northern California. San Francisco down to San Jose is the number one least churched area, uh, or de-churched, unchurched, according to Barna. 50% of people here in Monterey haven't been to church in the last six months. San Francisco, it's like 60%. And I found a statistic for where you're at, Santa Barbara, is uh, the second highest never-churched population in America. Did you you know that? I did not know that. I do know that we made, again, according to a Barna survey and whatever their precise calculations are, we were in the top 10 of most post-Christian communities in the U.S. Yeah. So this is a mission field. Absolutely it is. And it's great opportunity. I mean, Christians shouldn't be depressed and down about this because, mostly, we understand that just as Christianity flourished in a pre-Christian environment Mm -hmm. of the Roman Empire of the first century, uh, so we can very much flourish in a post-Christian, which we would say, let's just regard it as another pre-Christian environment. It can go from one generation denying the Lord to the next generation coming back to faith, as happened in the Jesus movement. A large number of the young people that were disenfranchised ended up getting saved. So maybe we can end on the on a note of hope. Yes. Um, how can we pray for God to move again in California to reverse this trend? Well, I think we do. We pray for genuine revival. And if people want to know what genuine revival is like, I really recommend going to the website jedwinor.com. Uh, to see the life, the teaching, the ministry of the late Dr. J. Edwin Orr. Man, that's the best education I could recommend to anybody about what biblical revival is about. What do we do? Well, we pray mindful of what biblical revival is and ready for it. But in the meantime, we're just about our Father's business. Mm -hmm. We look to evangelize whatever open door God gives us to do. We look to speak to who we can about Christ. We seek to be preachers and learners of God's Word. So we pray, we hope, we look, but then we're about our Father's business in the meantime. And I'm very excited to hear about how God is using your efforts in radio and and in other means of of broadcast. I think this is a wonderful thing. God gives us opportunities for a lot of platforms today, and I think we should be using the very best we can. It's a pleasure to be a part of this with you. Yeah. Thank you so much for being on the Dwell on Truth show. You're very welcome. Thank you. Definitely check out Pastor David Gusick's content. Uh, He's produced media himself, from videos to audio, through the Bible commentaries at blueletterbible.com, at enduringword.com, 
So check out Pastor David and Calvary Chapel Santa Barbara. If you are just tuning in, you can download interviews with David Guzik and Benjamin Morrison at dwellontruth.org. This is Brenton Powers.